This morning we're going to jump into 1 Samuel 9. Uh, but I want to catch us up on where we've been because I know it's summer and so uh, about 50% of Bay Marin is here this morning. Um, and so uh, let's uh, review on where we've been on this journey through the book of 1 Samuel. So the book of 1 Samuel opens and we're introduced to a woman named Hannah. And Hannah is longing for a child. And uh, she goes and, uh, to the tabernacle and she is pleading to God for a child, and she encounters a man named Eli there, who is the priest. And uh, through uh, the course of time, Hannah does get pregnant, and she gives birth to a child, uh, a boy, and she names him Samuel. And she takes Samuel, after he is weaned, he's probably about three years old, she takes Samuel back to Eli and says, I am giving Samuel back to the Lord. God has given Samuel to me. He has answered my prayer. I am giving him back to you, God. And so you can imagine Samuel like, oh, thanks, three-year-old boy. Uh, And uh, Hannah leaves. And so Samuel grows up in the tabernacle uh, under the care of Eli. And he grows up also with a couple of kind of quote-unquote stepbrothers, if you will, Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Now, Hophni and Phinehas, unfortunately, did not follow the ways of God. Uh, The choices they made were contrary to the way of God. And so uh, God speaks to Samuel, and he says, the days of Eli's house are coming to an end. And God raises Samuel up to take this position of leadership on behalf of the people of Israel. And so uh, through the course of events, uh, Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, they all die in the same day, Hophni and Phinehas in a battle. Uh, Eli, when he hears the news about uh, his son's death and when he hears the news that uh, the Ark of the Covenant, the sacred uh, box that held the Ten Commandments, were stolen by the Philistines, uh, Eli falls off his stool and breaks his neck. And so Samuel becomes the leader of Israel. And Samuel is faithful. He is a man who serves God and serves Israel faithfully all the days of his life. And then, last week we looked at 1 Samuel chapter 8, and uh, the people of Israel, they come to Samuel, and they say, Samuel, you're old. Um, thank you for stating the obvious, Samuel said. And, and they said, uh, and unfortunately, it looks as though your sons have not followed in your ways. And so Samuel's sons uh, were similar to Eli's sons. They were not like Samuel. They did not follow the ways of God. And uh, they weren't quite as bad as Eli's sons, but they were making a whole lot of bad choices. They accepted bribes, and they were doing all kinds of things out of selfish gain. And so the people said to Samuel, give us a king. Now notice that the people did not come to Samuel and say, you're getting old and your sons aren't following in your ways. Let us pray and discern together and cry out to the Lord about what he's calling us to next. Now They have already decided what is best. And what they believe is best is that we have a king over us. And they frame it this way. 
Uh, give us a king like all the other nations have. This is the people that God called out of slavery in Egypt and set them apart and said, you are to be a light to the nations. You are to be different. And I will be your king and you will be my people. The Israelites don't want to be different anymore. They want to be like everyone else. They want a king like everyone else has. They say it twice in 1 Samuel 8. I'm going to pick up at the end of 1 Samuel 8, verse 19. After Samuel had tried to convince them otherwise, had told them, this is what a king will do. He will enslave your sons. He will enslave your daughters. He will take everything from you. You, what, what you are asking for is ultimately to return to Egypt. You are asking to be enslaved again. Is that what you want? Yep, that's what we want. We want a king. The people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. Here was Israel's thing. They had a deep, deep fear that they were not secure, that their security was in jeopardy, their national security was in jeopardy. Out of that fear, they want a human king who will make them feel secure. Their choice for a king is rooted in fear, a fear that they won't be secure. We, we see this temptation to be motivated by fear all the way through the biblical narrative. It started in the very beginning. God creates the first humans and he gives them everything. He says, here, all of this is yours. Thrive, flourish, experience the fullness of shalom that I have created for you. And these first humans, Adam and Eve, they're, they're tempted. Uh, God's holding out on you. He hasn't given you everything. Just eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then you will be like God, knowing good from evil. And out of a fear that God was holding out on them, they ate the fruit. And God comes walking through the garden but Adam and Eve are hiding. And God says, where are you? Where are you? And this just wasn't an, a question of their physical location. This was a holistic, where are you? Where are you? Where is your heart? Where have you gone from me? And Adam's response to God was this. I was afraid. So I hid. And we have been hiding ever since. We are a people who so often live out of fear 
that we hide. We hide from God, we hide from others, we hide from ourselves. We hide from who God has created us to be. I'm going to skip to near the end of chapter 10, and then we'll flip back. In chapters 9 and 10, we're introduced to a young man. The young man's name is Saul. This is the first we've heard of Saul. He's young. He's described as a a head above everyone else. He's described as the most handsome man around. And so this should be a man who is full of confidence in who he is. Through a series of events, uh, Samuel anoints Saul to become king. He does it privately, and then they have a public time to anoint Saul. And so God has revealed to Samuel, this is the man who will become king. Samuel anoints him as king. And then to do it publicly, they did something uh, that they called casting lots. Uh, And this was a way for the people to be confirmed publicly in, this is who God has chosen to become king. So in 1 Samuel 10, verse 20, it says, when Samuel had all Israel come forward by tribes, the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and Matri's clan was taken. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord, has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, yes, he has hidden himself among the supplies or among the baggage. Saul was hiding. He was afraid of this calling on his life to lead Israel, to be Israel's king. And so he's hiding in the baggage. Why would Saul hide in the baggage? There is a deep fear of living into the fullness of who God has created him to be. Let's get back to beginning of chapter 9. Verse 1, there was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was, was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorath, the son of Aphia, of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. And he was a head taller than anyone else. So this is our first introduction to Saul. He comes from a family, his father Kish, who was a man of standing. In other words, this man, Kish, he was well respected. And and so Saul's beginnings are are not some humble beginnings of he's a nobody, and uh, this nobody's going to become king. He comes from a good family. He has a good upbringing. He has good prospects for his future. Not only that, but his physical stature is such that the narrator describes him as, as handsome as could be found in all of Israel and a head above everyone else. Now, the donkeys belonging to Saul's father, Kish, were lost. And Kish said to his son, Saul, take one of the servants with you and go look for the donkeys. And so 
We don't know exactly how old Saul is at this point, but uh, he's a young man, yet still living in his father's household. And his father's donkeys have gone missing. So Saul, uh, uh, Kish sends Saul on this journey to find his donkeys. And it's an amazing journey that he goes on, and they go from town to town to village to village, and they can't find the donkeys. And uh, Saul says to the servant, well, we should return home so my dad doesn't get worried about us. And the servant takes initiative. Not Saul. The servant takes initiative. And the servant says, there is a seer in a town right over here. And, And it's been heard that this seer, also known as the prophet Samuel, can tell you things that you don't know. Let's go inquire of this seer about your father's donkeys. And so they decide to go and seek Samuel out. Skip to verse 14. They went up to the town, and as they were entering it, there was Samuel coming toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked on my people, for their cry has reached me. Now this verse is absolutely stunning to me. The people have rejected God as their king. And God has said, because they have rejected me as their king, a day will come when they will cry out to me, And I will not listen. I will not hear. And yet, here, God says, I have heard their cry. And three times in this verse, he calls them my people. My people. I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them. In the, in the Hebrew, it says my people. In the English, it says them. He will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked on my people, for their cry has reached me. This, my friends, is profound love and grace. That despite rejecting God as king and wanting a human king, God says, okay, I will give them what they want. And God, in giving them what they want, says, I will still show them love and grace, and I will work in the midst of their poor decision." You see, God sometimes gives us what we want, even when it's not God's best for us. And by God's love and grace, he will somehow work in and through our poor decisions to bring about something good. This is the way God functions. Uh, Look at this text from the book of Exodus The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them. Next slide. I have seen, I have heard, 
I am concerned. I have come down to rescue. God is a God who sees, who hears, who is concerned, and who rescues. I don't know what you may have walked into this room this morning carrying, what burdens you may be carrying, but I can assure you of this. We serve a God who sees it. We serve a God who hears your cry. We serve a God who is concerned. And we serve a God who rescues. Through the whole biblical narrative, from that poor choice of Adam and Eve at the beginning, all the way through, God steps in to rescue. God sees, he hears, he's concerned and he rescues. This was the God who came to Adam and Eve in the garden and said, I will send a serpent crusher who will crush the head of the serpent and set you free. This is a God who came to his people who were in slavery in Egypt and said, I have seen, I have heard, I am concerned, and I will rescue them. This is the same God who comes to his people who have rejected him as king and says, I've seen, I've heard, I'm concerned, and I'll rescue them. And I will use their poor choice to somehow bring about their rescue. God is always about rescuing the oppressed. And the people of Israel right now in this time in history are being oppressed by a neighboring country, the Philistines. And God says, I've heard their cry. I've seen it. I'm concerned. I'm going to deliver them from this oppression. Verse 17, when Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, this is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. Saul approached Samuel in the gateway and asked, would you please tell me where the seer's house is? I am the seer, replied Samuel. Go up ahead of me to the high place, for today you are going to eat with me. And in the morning I will send you on your way and will tell you all that is in your heart. Now, in verse 16, anoint him ruler, and then again, when God says, this is the man who will rule my people. Uh, it's this Hebrew word. Next slide. Najid. It means the made known one. The made known one. God says, this is the one who I am going to make known. Interesting that the one who God wants to make known to the people of Israel as their ruler, as their leader, uh, at the end of the story is hiding in the baggage, afraid to be what God has called him to be. And Samuel says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you, Saul, everything that is in your heart. As for the donkeys you lost three days ago, do not worry about them. They have been found. And to whom is all the desire of Israel turned, if not to you and your whole family line? 
Now, the word heart is used three times in a series of verses here. It's used in verse 19. I'm going to show you all that's in your heart. It's used in verse 20. Do not worry. Uh, it's the same Hebrew word. If I can have the next slide. Leb. Do not worry is translated leb. In other words, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let your heart be heavy. Don't trouble yourself with the donkeys. And then in 10.9, which we'll look at, that Saul is going to get a new heart. I can have the next slide. Saul comes to Samuel with his mind set on donkeys. Samuel wants to set Saul's heart on something bigger. We so often have our minds and hearts set on things that trouble us or worry us or that we're concerned about when God wants to set our hearts on something so much bigger. Saul comes to Samuel to find out where his father's donkeys are. Samuel wants to reveal something so much bigger to Saul. Saul, your, your calling isn't to find lost donkeys. Your calling is something bigger. Jesus finds some men fishing. It's fishing. It's good. But it's not my best for you. There is something bigger that I have called you to. What, what is your heart, what is your mind consumed by this morning? Uh, what donkeys are you chasing? And what has God really invited you to set your heart on that is bigger than the donkeys you're chasing. Samuel wants to help Saul see a bigger reality, a bigger picture, something bigger going on. And so Samuel has dinner with Saul. And uh, then the next morning, he walks Saul out of town. He uh, has the servant go further up the road. And just privately, Samuel and Saul... Samuel pulls out a flask and pours oil over Saul's head and anoints him to be ruler over Israel. And Samuel seems to have great intuition. Uh, so he must see in this huge, handsome man so much insecurity and uncertainty. And, and so, he says to Saul, I've anointed you ruler over the people of Israel, and uh, just so you know this is real, just so you know this is true, uh, there's going to be some signs that you will get on your way home to your father. And it's not just one sign, because uh, Saul might have just written that sign off. It's not just two signs, it's three signs. Uh, the first is you'll, you'll run into a group of people uh, who will say, uh, your, the, your father's donkeys have returned home, and your father is now concerned about you. That's sign number one. Next, you'll run into a few more people who have a bunch of food, uh, and they're going to give you two loaves of bread, and you're going to accept them. The third is then you'll come into another town and you'll see this group of prophets that are dancing and singing and uh, you're going to join them. 
and you'll turn into a different person. In chapter 10, verse 6, Samuel says to Saul, The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. Chapter 10, verse 9, as Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart. And all these signs were fulfilled that day. All three of the signs were fulfilled. And so uh, certainly now Saul, after this experience with Samuel, and after being anointed by Samuel to be king over Israel, and after Samuel saying, these three things will happen, and then those three things happening, certainly now Saul will be filled with confidence to become a great king, right? I mean, just look at what happens when he enters this town where the prophets are. Verse 10, when he and his servants arrived at at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he joined in their prophesying. When all those who had formerly known him saw him prophesying with the prophets, they asked each other, what is this that has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? A man who lived there answered, and who is their father? So it became a saying, is Saul also among the prophets? After Saul stopped prophesying, he went to the high place. Now Saul's uncle asked him and his servant, where have you been? Looking for the donkeys, he said. But when we saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. Saul's uncle said, tell me what Samuel said to you. Saul replied, he assured us that the donkeys had been found, but he did not tell his uncle what Samuel had said about the kingship. All of this stuff that happened to Saul, and what does he report to his uncle? The donkeys have been found. That's what Samuel told us. The donkeys have been found. That's it. Nothing about being anointed king, nothing about the signs, nothing about the changed heart, nothing about the prophesying, nothing about the power of the spirit that had come upon him. Just Samuel told us that the donkeys had been found. So we came home. This is the man who is to be Israel's first human king, that God has said, okay, people, you want a king? Here he is. He'll save you from the Philistines. Here's the guy who will lead you. And he's afraid to tell his uncle about what's been revealed to him. And then in the public ceremony to anoint him as king over Israel, he's hiding in the baggage. He's hiding in the baggage. Uh, Let's skip the next slide and go to the following one. This is uh, African novelist Ben Okri. He says, it may be that what you could be haunts you. It is real. It is a weight you have carried around. Each failure to become, to be, is a weight. Each state you could inhabit is a burden as heavy as any physical weight, but 
more so because it weighs on your soul. It is the ghost of your possibilities hanging around your neck, an invisible albatross, potentials unknowingly murdered. <laughs> what Saul could become haunts him. And he lives with a deep fear of becoming who God has created him to be. And so he's hiding in the baggage. He's hiding in the baggage. See, uh, God will work in and through our humanness in beautiful and powerful ways, but he won't force us to become. We must submit to the power of the Spirit that comes upon us to change our hearts and make us new. And as you continue to read through the book of 1 Samuel, what we see over and over and over and over again in the life of Saul is this. Fear. Fear. Fear that God won't keep his promises. Fear that he can't be the king he's supposed to be. Fear of the Philistines. Fear, fear, fear. My friends, fear is crippling. Fear does keep us from being who God created us to be. When we hide in the baggage, when we hide behind facades, when we hide from who God created us to be, it not only affects us, it affects everyone around us. And Saul's fear affected an entire nation. We are invited to live free from fear. If I can add the next slide. In Isaiah, God says, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God invites us into a place where we know through and through God is here. He is with me. There's no reason to be afraid. This is the command given more than any other command in all the scriptures. Do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. Do not be afraid, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. Jesus comes saying, do not worry. Do not worry. We are invited to live a life free of fear because when we live in fear, it not only affects us, it affects everyone around us because we are not living into the fullness of who God invited us to be. When we, we set up programs for our life of how things should be, of how our family life should be, the structure our family life should be in, the structure our church life should be in, the structure our organization should be in, the structure our company should be in, the structure our work should be in, structures are great things. They're good, but they're not God. God gives us good 
tools to work with, but those tools are not God. And structure must always submit to the Spirit. The structure must be fluid. Because if they are strict and made from concrete, they will topple. Structure must submit to spirit. And when we hide behind the structures, when we cling to the structures in the baggage to say safe and secure and a longing for self-preservation, the spirit will powerfully disrupt that. And unless we are open to the movement of the Spirit to explode our safety, our ideas of security, and our self-preservation, the structure will topple. We're invited into something new that the Spirit is doing every day in our midst. Will we submit to the Spirit rather than the structures we have built. There is a spirit that lives inside of you, just waiting for you to say, yes. Yes, I will follow the spirit, rather than hole up in the baggage out of my fear for safety, security, and self-preservation. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. There is no fear in love. That's what 1 John says. There is no fear in love. Jesus comes and he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. He was tempted in every way, just as you and I were, yet without sin. And that same spirit continued to lead him all through his life, all the way to the cross, because he chose to die on the cross rather than live out of fear. Even in the garden when he's begging, God, my Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me, he says, but not as I will, as you will. And the will of God was that Jesus would show us how to die, how to give up everything for the sake of God and the sake of the world. Jesus gave up everything for our sakes, suffering and dying on our behalf. And when we come and we take this bread and we dip it in this cup, that's what we remember, that Jesus did not choose the way of fear He chose the way of courage, and that courage is shown most powerfully in his death on a cross for us to free us from our own fears. What's your baggage? What baggage are you hiding behind? Jesus comes to free us from fear and to live into the fullness of who he created us to be. God, this morning as we come and partake of these elements, this beautiful gift you gave us, your body broken, your blood shed out for the sake of the world, 
God, I pray that we would come with everything that we are, all the good and all the bad, and give it to you. God, whatever fears we have this morning, I pray that your spirit would come upon us powerfully, and that we would leave those fears here, and that we would receive from you. Fill us to overflowing with your spirit, God, to live out of who you created us to live for your sake and the sake of the world. In the name of Jesus, amen. As you go, may you know the spirit of the risen Christ who fills you, spirit of love, the spirit of peace, the spirit of forgiveness, not a spirit of fear. May the spirit of God free you from all fear to live as God created you to live and become all God created you to become. The grace and peace of the risen Christ be yours. Amen.